I sure do. Debate and discourse has been reduced to yelling, tweeting, and drinking games for the rest of us to survive this shit show. I'm Sarah. I'm Robert. <laughs> drinking games. If we had a drinking game last night, we'd all be dead. Really, we just drank our way through. But anyway, we won't drink our way through this, which is minutes 41 through 44 of Pump Up the Volume, uh, which starts with uh, Shep Shepard, the reporter, saying, back to you, Bill. And Mark says, uh, yeah, back to you. He's watching TV down in his basement. You probably don't have notes on a few of the next things because you don't, you're obsessed about each little shot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, cause he, he, he stands up and looks at his clock. He checks his watch. We get a close up on the clock, which is stacked on a bunch of cassette tapes, which we don't see many of for it then. Um, we see the descendants tape, which he's played already and some tape from IRS records. That's the shot where we see that. And then we go back to Mark, who has an unlit cigarette suddenly in his mouth, because cigarettes are magical in this universe. And that's when he pulls Leonard Cohen's various positions as vinyl out of its sleeve, except it's the wrong vinyl. The real album should have a red and orange label, and the one he pulls out has a white label. So it's the wrong record out of the sleeve, but that's okay. So do you think there's any reason he keeps looking at the time? Is it just anxiety? Is he waiting for a certain time to go on the air? Well, his show goes on the air at 10. Oh, okay. And it's, yeah. the clock says 9.59, so he's like, he sees 9.59, he's, it's taking too long. Even though he hasn't even decided to start his show yet, exactly, because the whole point in the segment is that he's hesitating. Well, then maybe that minute is just about the decision, do I or don't I? Yeah. Like, if when he looked up, it switched to 10 o'clock, oh, I'm going on the air. But right. since it didn't, he's like, eh, maybe I should. And he puts on the what would be track five on side two. This is uh, Leonard Cohen's seventh studio album, re- studio album released December 1984. Uh, his first one with a new producer, and from what I read, the first one of what we kind of think of as Leonard Cohen, because his voice had changed since his last album, even though, I guess, or maybe because he had stopped smoking. That gave him the sort of smoker's rasp that we're all familiar with in his voice, and his lower, uh, lower register. And the song is If It Be Your Will, which the lyrics are a little on the nose here, but that's probably what Mark puts it on. If it be your will, uh, I forget the exact, I didn't put down the exact lyrics, but like, I won't speak anymore. I won't talk anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so, I'm so familiar with the song. I didn't put the lyrics on my notes and then I can't remember. I will nitpick. He is going to damage his records if he turns it on all like this. Cause he puts the needle down and then starts it turning. Oh yeah. That's not not a good idea. No. Is it just better visually, or is it faster, or why is it shot that way, do you think? If it were a movie film now, set in the 80s, it'd be like the person, the young person just didn't know how to run a record player, but Christian Slater was alive in the 80s, he knew how to run it. I don't know. (laughs) It's just that take, he did it that way. Uh, And then this is, I think, the only time in the movie we see someone actually light a cigarette. He lights a match, lights a cigarette, and then lights a candle, and pulls it up close to him, and stares at it. As the lyrics begin for the song. And then we, he blows out the candle suddenly, takes the needle off the record, and it's the wrong record again. It's a completely different one. It's the Motown record we saw a close up of a segment or two ago. So they're not good with their props. But then he flips on the show and I have a lot of nitpicks in this segment. Ah, uh, in his first monologue? No, not it. No, I mean just like technical movie stuff. Oh, I like see. Like the wrong <laughs> prop for the thing, the cigarette magically being in his mouth. Mm-hmm. 
uh, here, everybody knows starts. He didn't start it. He has it on vinyl. He yeah. has it on, uh, tape. He has it on a cassette. None of them start, but the song just magically starts playing when he hits the thing on the air. <laughs> he doesn't have a system for that. And then he grabs the mic and seems ready, but then stops the tape. He does start talking, but it's like there's this moment where it still seems like he's hesitating even though he's got the mic. And then we're into his monologue, which I believe is his longest one in the film. Because it's going to be going in through this segment, the next one, and into the one after. Right. Yeah, because the only interruption to the monologue is when we go out. Yeah, we get reaction shots and stuff, but he's still But still his monologue. And he says he never planned it like this. His dad bought him this radio so he could talk to friends back east, but he couldn't talk to anybody. And then he says he he thought he was talking to nobody with this show. I imagine nobody listening. And we see Paige is in her bed listening. We see a couple of listeners who we don't know yet, a girl and a guy. But she's wearing a blazer that I think makes it look like maybe she goes to a different school, like a private school. Yeah, it could be a private school. So, like, his audience is getting bigger. And we see Nora drawing, and she's specifically framed in between her radio and the radio handles, like she's part of the show visually, which is kind of cool, as she's laying on her bed drawing. That's when he says, maybe I imagine that one person out there. One day I woke up and realized I was never going to be normal, so I said, fuck it. He says this, as you pointed out yesterday, to his iguana. Yeah. Which will make more sense in the moment, because he takes the iguana out and talks to him. So, do you think he just couldn't reach anybody back east because they didn't have radios? Probably. Or it's too far? I don't know, it seems odd that I mean, I guess people didn't really have shortwave, cell phones Shortwave yet, radios <laughs> were not popular in 1990. Yeah. They were already nerdy and obscure in the mid-80s. I know both of my brothers and my first brothers-in-law, two of my sisters were married in the 80s, and their husbands both had, like, shortwave radios. And, like, it was this nerdy, cool thing to do. But that was, like, 84, 85. <laughs> By this point, yeah, his if Mark's friends were at all cool or interesting, they probably weren't. They didn't have him, or he just didn't try hard enough, or tried at the wrong times. Who knows? And he says, maybe I imagine one person out there, but then when he realizes there is one person out there who does care, he can't deal with her very well. So right. I guess he imagined that person out there just maybe listening he, and not communicating. Maybe he imagined Donald, you know, sitting quietly and recording <laughs> yeah. the show, which we see a shot of somewhere in here. We also get uh, some other listeners, two kids on their bikes in their driveway. Yeah, just riding going in, in a circles. circle around <laughs> around the radio. And we get a close-up on the girl of those two when he says, I never meant to hurt anyone. Honestly, I never meant to hurt anyone. I'm sorry, Malcolm. I never said don't do it. And he says, anyway, that's it. Show's over. I'm done. Stuck a fork in me. And he puts on a cassette out of frame of Concrete Blonde's cover of Everybody Knows. But not for the listeners, because then he turns the show off. And Nora, and we get responses from Nora. So, come on, you can't do this. Paige, this is a joke, right? And Maz, come on, Harry, baby, don't sniff. And I forgot to write down how long Mark actually hesitates before he goes back on. I don't remember. It's only a few seconds. Yeah. Of course, he doesn't know they're doing that. And they're, yeah. they're all hanging on, like, so stressed, like, they need his voice. I'm not quite sure what he's done to earn such an intense fan base i but i guess being something different or something well yeah (laughs) the the movie has demonstrated that nora is a bit obsessive about it we don't necessarily know why or like a good reason for it but we know it's there maz it might be all he's got anymore he's hanging out in his car every night because he already got kicked out of school and uh, Paige is 
this is the night where she gets really into it. So we'll see. We can talk about that more when stuff happens next segment. Because Mark's monologue continues. He turns his signal back on, says, what am I doing? Fuck it. And then he gives his, what the script calls a eulogy for Malcolm. And in the script, it is even while he's doing this monologue, we do get a shot of the people at inside the mortuary. So it actually plays like a, a eulogy. And Mark says, you hear about some kid did something stupid, something desperate. What possessed him? How could he do such a terrible thing? Well, this is where he picks up the iguana. It's really quite simple, actually. Consider the life of a teenager. Uh, you have parents and teachers telling you what to do. You have movies, magazines, and TV telling you what to do. But you know what you have to do. And he's really funny. He keeps pointing at the iguana. like He's yeah. telling that iguana off. <laughs> well, he's been getting so many lectures. Yeah. It helps him to release it to... <laughs> he's got the iguana, the iguana. In the lecture. Yeah. And the iguana probably doesn't even that stressed by it. No, I... He's being picked up. Yeah. <laughs> and he says, your job, your purpose is to get accepted, get a cute girlfriend, and think up something great to do for the rest of your life. And this is when we cut away to Donald in his room, listening and recording. What if you're confused and you can't imagine a career? What if you're funny looking and you can't get a girlfriend and get a shot of Paige? You see, no one wants to hear it, but the terrible secret is that being young... And just... And the segment cuts off. <laughs> and just to clarify, it's when... He says the line, what if you're confused and can't imagine a career that you get the cut of page as if she's wondering like what she's doing at. Right. Yeah. And then when it's, what if you're funny looking and you can't get a girlfriend that we cut to him. Then we cut back. Yeah. yeah. Dressing the expectations on teenagers then and now are so high. You remember being a teenager. It's like you are at this precipice where you have to make so many difficult decisions and at the same time, you also have to listen to your parents. There's no real escape. And Gen X in 1990 was looking at just witnessing their parents' unhappy marriages. You had like the height of divorce in the 80s. They're thinking, why? Like, what are we doing all of this for? So start questioning systems. Um, in the U.S. in particular, statistics aren't too much different from 1990 to 2020, although it's actually worse now. Tell teenagers, you have to get a job. You know, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? And only 13% of people in the U.S. report to actually like their jobs. 87% of people are either indifferent or actively dislike their jobs. Only 14% of people in the U.S. claim to be very happy, and that's at an all-time low now in 2020, but the numbers weren't too high in 1990 either, so they're being told what to do and then seeing, well, my parents aren't happy. A lot of time, I mean, Mark's parents are together, but a lot of parents aren't even together. So they're like, well, we don't want a marriage like this. We don't want a job like this. And now in 2020, we tell kids they still have to go to college. They still have to do all of these things. But teens are going to college just for jobs that we were lucky enough to get with high school diplomas. Yeah. I've even talked to my students about that. I was a terrible high school student who barely graduated from high school at all, cut nearly half the days of my senior year of school where I just straight up wouldn't go. And right out of high school as a teen mom, I got a full-time job with benefits at a Fortune 500 company that I was able to work my way up in. And that's something that's pretty unheard of now. So... Also, over the past several decades, we see friendships declining. This started in the 1980s. Average number of friendships has cut 
by basically a third and people are reporting deeper or less satisfaction, less deep connections, even within their friendships themselves. There's a lot Hmm. of interpersonal communication research on this. And so we're telling these kids to do these things and they don't even have the friendship support. And we see everybody here kind of like isolated listening to Mark and they're all going through struggles and he is, but they're not really talking to each other or their parents so much about these issues. Nora would be willing to, but it seems like, but she's not really given the opportunity There's actually something I haven't noted. The few times we've seen her room, when she listens Mm -hmm. to the show, she has her door open, but we Mm -hmm. never see her parents in the entire movie. Yeah. That, that is interesting though, because it shows she is a more open person Mm -hmm. to other people in general. So in 2020, teenagers also have more college debt than ever before and they're living at home at greater rates than ever before. And we have less romantic love. So that's something I've been researching and some of my students have been researching more recently. Teens, because this goes against what a lot of people think or imagine with teenagers. Teenagers are actually having less sex than ever before, and they're less likely to say that they even believe in romantic love or want a relationship that romantic love is involved, and they're partnering a lot less. However we feel about monogamy or polygamy or any of those things, that's a different discussion. But Mm -hmm. the the fact is that their views, having seen the last I mean, I haven't seen the last 30 or 40 years unfold because I haven't been alive that long, but say, I guess the social implications from Gen X as we have now transitioned to millennials and now Gen Z is that they're just not, they don't believe in these systems and institutions. And that includes the system and institution of marriage or romantic love as a concept at all. Yeah. Now, the segment ends with him petting his iguanas, and he's mid-sentence. We'll get to the rest of that sentence next time. But i got to backtrack a little, because there's a scene in the script that isn't in the film here, which starts when he goes to turn off his show and turns on, instead of hearing the first of the Concrete Blonde cover of Everybody Knows, which we'll hear the whole thing later, or more of it later, he turns on uh, Kaiyu Sakamoto's Sukiyaki, which I think you know more about. So, Sukiyaki, the song itself wasn't even originally named Sukiyaki. It was the Japanese words for I look up as I walk, which I look up as I walk is about what the song is about itself. But before we get to that, Sukiyaki, or the name Sukiyaki was given to the song because it was more palatable for a white American audience. It sounded (laughs) happier, it sounded Pleasant, it was easier um, for them to say, but this 1963 actually hit number one on the Billboard Top 100 and is one of the only non-English songs to ever do so. Nice. And it's one of the best-selling songs of all time with over 13 million copies sold. The lyrics were written by Rokusuke Ai, and he wrote these lyrics while walking home from a protest against continued U.S. military presence in his country, and he was feeling dejected about the failure of the movement and the lyrics and why it was titled I Look Up As I Walk is in the song, the man is walking, or excuse me, the man is whistling while walking and he's looking up so that his tears won't fall on the ground. It's actually a very sad song, and it's written about a very specific protest and about the failure of protest to 
affect change, but that's not how most Americans know the song. <laughs> they tend to see it as a as a happier song, and the title Sukiyaki also allowed Americans to just, I guess, have that impression of it being a happier song. And it's been dozen or it's been sampled by dozens of artists, and there have been a ton of covers, including um, Snoop Dogg and Dougie Fresh have, huh. yeah. <laughs> Use this song. Now it's now it's starting to bug me the songs that they left out because the song the script mentions the Chicago we can change the world, which is about protest stuff, and they took it yeah. out. Sukiyaki is about a protest, right. and they took it out. They use I mean everybody knows it's awesome, but on that same album you got first we take Manhattan, which is a protest song, and not really really related to protests, but just one more interesting note about this song. It was one of the very first ever played in space heard by an astronaut. NASA played it. NASA played it as mood music was supposed to help with like anxiety of the astronauts. They found it pleasant. Yeah. And then we get a scene in the script that's not in the film in which in the film, we don't see Nora go to Mark's house until later, but in the script, she goes there now for the first time, even though as we'll see next segment, she's wearing nothing but a long shirt. That's specifically in the script that she's dressed for bed, Uh, but she runs barefoot to her driveway she wears only a thigh-length shirt. She hops on her bike and rides away. We get a montage of her driving there. It's only 500 yards from her house to Mark's. And then she crosses the lawn, goes... In, she climbs in through his window. Huh. But then realizes when she gets inside that there's those glass sliding doors oh. that she can oh, leave no. by. So when she leaves, she goes out the sliding doors. But she knocks on the window and says, it's me, I have to talk to you. He blinks. He can't believe she's out there. She opens the window herself. He steps back. She looks wild and sweaty. She says, look, you can't quit now. Look, you can't quit now. People listen to you. I know they're saying you're some freak, but you know you're not. Again, he tries to say something, but cannot summon the right words. The song inanely plays in the background. She becomes annoyed at the silence. She enters. Yeah, when she gets to the window, he's singing along with the song in Japanese. He just stands there, unable to make his brain work. He looks away again. She says, hey, don't you hear me talking to you? She gives up in exasperation and exits by the glass doors and strides away into the night. Mark says, wait. And then too late, Mark slumps. He's furious at himself for not being able to speak with her. He slams around the room in frustration. He has to do something. He goes back on the air vehemently. And then he starts with, uh, you hear about some kid does something stupid. And get to back to the monologue that's in the movie. So do you think them getting rid of all the protest songs was a purposeful choice to have a wider audience for the film? Would people even notice that? Or It could be because that's the kind of thing you can also change what song he puts on here. Mm-hmm. We don't have to know in the movie. It's just music. So if Sukiyaki was what was put on in production or what they were planning, it could be easily changed later in post-production for the soundtrack. You know, they got a bunch of brand new songs. Hardly any of those are written into the film other than Leonard Cohen's and Beastie Boys. The descendants, you know, things he sings along with, sings along with or mentions. So yeah, they're going for a 1990 youth audience with the soundtrack. Soundtracks were Already a big thing. But we can talk about more about soundtracks next time. Uh, I would add, even though we're about to do the plugs in normal order, we have a playlist for the show that I created on YouTube because some of the songs were missing from Spotify. On YouTube because some of the songs were missing from Spotify. The link is on our Twitter and on our Facebook page. In the meantime, you can listen to my other shows by finding links to them on Lemming Drops, including Michael Myers Minute, where I looked at the original Halloween one minute at a time with the occasional guest. 
If you want to hear more about music and social and political commentary, you can listen to Life as a Playlist, and you can also follow my Life as a Playlist social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Speak out! They can't stop you! Find your voice and use it! Keep this thing going! Pick a name! Go on the air! Your life! Take charge of it! Do it! Try it! Try anything! Fill your guts up! Say shit and fuck a million times if you want to, but you decide! Fill the air! Steal it! Keep the air alive! And follow this show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Pump Up The Minute, or go to lemmingdrops.com for links to this and other shows. Talk hard! Everybody knows Everybody knows That's how it goes Oh, everybody knows Everybody